I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And on today's episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with Hong Kong and London-based interior designer Joyce Wang, who's joining us in our Hong Kong office. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Joyce. It's uh, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me, Susie. Nice to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to start out, uh, you know, this year has obviously been one of change and transition. And there's been, I think, a lot of cause for people to reflect and perhaps ponder. And I wanted to ask you what you've been thinking about. What's been on your mind this year? Yeah, I think being self-reflective, I mean, now that social distancing is kind of the norm. Uh, We've been, both the Hong Kong and London studio, we've been working for a long time from home. Um, And I think that dynamic has just meant kind of turning a bit more inwards and having that opportunity to have a look at how we represent ourselves to the industry, whether it's online um, or, you know, through physical means of portfolio. I'm thinking about our plans ahead, um, what we will be doing when we do have the opportunity of, you know, going out, meeting people and and being more social. So um, it has given us that time to reflect on the way that we represent ourselves. And you have relatively small teams in Hong Kong and London. So you were already kind of bi-locational, I suppose, for want of a better word. Do you think that that setup and and the size has helped you be, or or to transition, I suppose, to working remotely and not necessarily being physically in contact with the staff throughout this year? Yeah, I think actually having the London studio um, and, and Hong Kong studio has always meant that I've not been able to be in both places at the same time. Um, so working over digital platforms like WhatsApp, even Zoom, um, and kind of doing charrettes with the team over the phone, you know, on the laptop, on the iPad, that's that's always been part of the way that we work. Um, and I guess stepping into this transition has been smoother, as you say, because we have a smaller team. We're I'd like to think more nimble as well. So when one kind of change needs to happen and say, oh, we all get on Slack as a platform, um, then it's quite quick to see that change and for people to respond and feedback on what works, what doesn't. Um, And when something does work for that to then filter through both studios. Um, So I think having a small studio is definitely a benefit to that. That's good to hear. So I actually wanted to go back to the very beginning, perhaps even before you founded the studio, and asked you, ask you about, uh, you know, perhaps when it was that you decided to be a designer, whether there was a single aha moment or whether it was perhaps uh, a series of small realisations in childhood or later in life. Can you tell us a bit about when that kind of came to you? 
Yeah, I think I can remember a couple of things. I and they were with mom and dad. Like, my dad used to travel a lot. Um, for I mean, he still does, and um, he would take my mom along. And sometimes I get to go with them, and it would mean going to Switzerland or India to some of his suppliers' home countries, and sometimes it would mean going to their homes for dinner. And um, I remember going to these places; and they feel so foreign to me. You know, and what a home would mean, um, how they would eat, um, just the process of even getting to their homes, and like what staircases would mean, and the division of privacy. And I, I just, I mean, at that time, I didn't really know how to put that experience into into words. Um, but now, looking back on it, I think it actually had a fundamental effect on what I think is interesting and, and how I'd want to understand that and express that. And like one other moment was definitely visiting HSBC bank building with my mom. And she was just there to, I don't know, get some money out. And um, this is HSBC headquarters in Hong Kong designed by Foster and Partners. And I remember going up with her, these escalators, I was maybe eight at the time. And I just thought, wow, I feel so important somehow. like. And I, you know, I didn't have my own banking. I didn't have anything. And just arriving there and seeing the space, like it was this kind of grand reveal after going through these double escalators into the glass belly of this building. Um, and you arrive and this is huge atrium. You can kind of sense, you know, it was almost like going into this ant farm. Like everybody had their own agenda of like working and everything was working together as a machine almost. And I remember asking like, who? makes this and she was like what do you mean like who builds a building i was like well no who thinks about where to put like what she's like what architects do and i just thought okay i think i want to be one of those <laughs> wow that's quite a yeah. powerful moment yeah and what a great building to be inspired yeah. by as well i i think yeah the way that you describe that actually is perhaps the last that how i felt the last time that i was there actually but i don't know that i would have articulated it like that that's really yeah. interesting so I'm curious to know what you thought design meant at that age or at that time and and perhaps how that may have changed in the intervening years. That's such a good question because I, I feel like growing up in a traditional Chinese family, architecture has always meant leaning more towards the creative side but always it being a professional career, so it was still acceptable. So you might not be the lawyer or the doctor that your parents wanted you to be, but architecture was still acceptable because it was a professional career and it didn't mean you know painting on walls and being overly artistic. Um, but I think um, having kind of gone through my education and you know the years of ex experience that I have is I've, I definitely see the, the value of embracing the creative side and being open to that um, more than anything and how it feeds back into professionalism and like opening up your palette. And um, yeah, I, I, I think in a way <clears throat> being kind of encouraged to be disciplined about that in the beginning um, has definitely shaped how hungry I am now for that, that other side. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. 
And your formal studies um, were in the US and in London, if I'm mm. remembering correctly, and quite different uh, educational pursuits. Can you tell us a little bit about the thought process behind those two different sort of paths, I suppose? Yeah, my undergrad and graduate studies were drastically different on the probably most extreme scales of the spectrum. I studied ar architecture and material science at MIT. Um, and that meant, you know, we would build models out of balsa wood and test um, wind effect, thermal mass. It was very physics heavy. Um, and whatever we designed had to be, um, it, it, it had to be constructible and had to be able to withstand the elements. And that was what architecture meant. Um, in contrast to that, at the RCA where I did my graduate studies in the UK, um, it was the opposite of that. It was, you didn't have to have anything physical, actually, not even a building. It was the idea of what creating an environment meant and being able to defend your narrative. Um, so I think taking a plunge into that was like really felt like diving in right at the deep end. Um, at the beginning of graduate school, like we didn't have a thesis of here's your project, design a writer's cabin. Um, it was like, okay, we're gonna explore the idea of identity. Um, you know, think of your own project. We'll check back in with you in a few weeks and see what you've come up with. So it was a lot less structured in that way and mm. it was much more self-propagate an idea. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like those two vastly different educational streams really shaped who you've become as a designer. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah, yep. I think in a way the MIT education is is so fundamental in that um, you know it grounds you in the physical world it it makes you th you know really question you know in the work that we do today um, you know, does this have to be this way can we construct it differently um, you know how can we merge the structure with the 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 staircase for example to make it more aesthetically pleasing and and not be cheated away I guess in, in a way where consultants can say, oh, you're just a design, you don't understand. But I think having that background, you're able to then uphold a lot of those ideas. Um, and then with the RCA, I think the the art of presentation and, and I think that the, the main piece of training there is if you don't, if you're not a fan of your own idea, it, it becomes really difficult to actually market that to anybody mm. um, so I think understanding and being able to articulate your own story and, and what your project means you know is probably the most important piece when you're working for yourself right? mm, absolutely but you then went on if I'm remembering correctly to work with Norman Foster or Foster and Partners for a period of time before setting up your own studio <laughs> was there any uh kind of connection to your memories of that that experience of the building that sort of led you to work there or was that purely coincidental no definitely I mean I it was kind of a dream job um when I got the opportunity to work in the London London office I, I just thought wow like I'd love 
to expose myself to that and see what goes on behind the scenes. Um, and at, <laughs> I spent a year and a half working there and I was their PowerPoint girl. Um, and it was, I mean, looking back, it was an incredible um, position to be in because um, Lord Foster, like he, he would take that presentation and win competitions with it. And being the PowerPoint girl meant putting the slides together and understanding the flow of the narrative of how he would structure his argument of why, you know, they should win as a studio and why their scheme was better. And mm. I remember one of the things he insisted on was having um, hands, like a, a sense of like human presence in the photography of models. Mm. And I just, I was like, oh, something that seems so, um, irrelevant um you know that's not even part of the design why would that be important but um yeah I mean little little things like that I guess trickled down and whilst I was like busy like doing the animations and making sure that you know there weren't any glitches um I think a lot of that the layering of the story and how it's told um has stayed with me mm. and is there anything else that you would be able to sort of pinpoint that you learnt from him or th through the process and um, of, of being in that in that studio in that environment? Yeah, I I distinctly remember how articulate he is. Um, he's able to because we didn't have much time with him. I think um, we, you know, before we had a, a review with him, which might only be ten minutes, we'd have everything pinned up you know it was like at school and, and doing a review everything pinned up and like Norman would come around and he would just take a glance at the plans and know what the weakest part of that design was and, and question that um, and you know he wouldn't have been involved in, in any of you know the months and months of planning that we were part of um, so I think that level of quick kind of understanding and like being able to smell out what, what was weak in a scheme. Um, I, I think that something that really inspired me and I just felt, yeah, you really deserve to be where you are right now and, and yeah. for everybody to kind of have your listening ears open because um, I think it just goes to prove how yeah, how trained and, you know, it, it's not just, um, I guess, the team and, and the hundreds of people that he's got working with him. That, that represents mm. a lot of what he's built, but it is down to one man and, and what he's actually able to articulate in that very quick moment. Mm. That's kind of amazing, actually. And so throughout that time and, and maybe also when you were studying, did you always know or think or plan that you would end up with your own studio working for yourself? No. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Wow. I, okay. Um, I actually came back to Hong Kong looking for a job. Um, I, I think after the MIT and RC education, I was really confused which path mm. I wanted to take, whether it was more architecture or interior design. And I started applying to places like um, Bureau Happold, Over Arab, 
mm. um, Grimshaw's like very architecturally heavy mm. companies in the UK and at that time it was a recession mm. so um, I remember going into David Ajay's office and half the lights were like shut down and, and the receptionist said I wouldn't leave your CV here because we're we're actually letting go of people. Oh, wow. So it was not a great environment to be looking for work in the UK. And that's when I came back to oh. Hong Kong to look for work here. At the same, it wasn't great either. Um, so whilst I was actually doing this, um, a friend of a friend who, who had secured a site at the Asia Society, you know, he said, oh, I heard you've just come back from school. I'm actually struggling with my design at the moment. Maybe you can help me out with doing um, my first restaurant. Um, at the Asia Society. I was like, oh, okay, let's have a look. So I remember going with Tony, um, who I'd never met before, and he pointed out the space, and he was like, you know, I've got these, like, chandeliers, like, you know, I've, this space needs to be done in three months, like, what can you come up with? So that was where... Kind oh, of my gosh. <laughs> of all the times that I've spoken to you and interviewed you, I never knew that that's how yeah. ammo came about. How incredible. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. And do you think that that experience, because it was, it was, I mean, it, it had so much visibility, I think, internationally beyond the you, tiny. Susie, well, you wrote about it. It might have been <laughs> one of them. I was one of many, though, definitely. You were the tipping point, for oh, sure. I don't know about that. But, you know, the tiny shores of Hong Kong, it really, really became very visible and talked about internationally very quickly, um, which is incredible. But I, I wonder whether that experience, and then obviously the subsequent sort of visibility after that really maybe cemented your thoughts about doing interior design. Did that really kind of push you towards hospitality or were you, do you think you were already thinking that way? It definitely pushed me towards hospitality. I think um, it pushed me towards interior design for sure because um, maybe not hospitality as a genre yet, but interior design and that, like with Ammo, we it was designed and built within three months and just the quick turnaround was really appealing. Um, you know, when I was working at Foster's office, it was, you know, we didn't see um, what, you know, our work at that speed mm. at all, if ever. So um, I think that was really appealing to, to be working with materials and being on site. And I really enjoy pushing the contractor and actually having a dialogue with them to say, Oh, you've never worked with material in that way. Okay, let's let's figure it out together. You know, maybe we could do the plumbing pipes this way. You know, he looked at the drawings of the plumbing pipe chandeliers for ammo, and mm. he, he was like, "Oh, what do you mean they're pipes? Like, what are we gonna do with them? Like, and connect them? They're not gonna be secure." And like, <laughs> so then I was like, "Oh no, 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 it'll be fine. Let's do it together." And then once I said that, he was like, "Okay," and and I think that's where I saw the benefit of staying small because you can yeah. spend the energy to convince people of kind of crazier ideas if, yeah. if you can't spend the time on it then it's very difficult to convince anybody of anything yeah um amazing so yeah it sounds like you really enjoyed that process what were the the more challenging aspects of of that project um, aside from the time <laughs> i think actually within asia society um that building itself there were restrictions of what we could and couldn't touch so um, the flooring had to remain as it is we couldn't touch the glass glazing um, the ceiling you know we had to um, be able to return the space back to its mm. original state had the tenant ever vacated 
Um, so because the space is so high as well, um, beyond eye level, there wasn't any way of engaging that level of space. Um, so that's where the chandeliers came in and um, you know, we thought about actually creating freestanding light boxes um, that combined with wait stations for the restaurant at the time. I had no idea if that was the right thing to do, but <laughs> the space kind of dictated. And I think, you know, a lot of those uncertainties and risks um, teaches you the most lessons because, you know, you're kind of questioning yourself and then you see that's the beauty also of designing public spaces because you see how people engage with them, how the operator uses them and you see people dining in that space and you learn really quickly. Mm. And I guess also the very fast-paced nature of Hong Kong as a city and, a, and an environment to work in I think also exacerbates that in, in many, many ways. But it sounds to me like you've always really enjoyed that. I think perhaps uh, some designers that I know that are here and perhaps aren't from Hong Kong, I think it takes them a while to really get into that the mm. rhythm and that sort of pace of how things are done here and it it seems to really um if I can say bring out the best in you in a way it's almost like that's this challenge yeah. that um I really like that I mean when we were working on the landmark Mandarin I always remember that experience as being drastically different to when we worked on the Mandarin Hyde Park in London mm. the 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 day-to-day -day how we do a project the culture of it, you know, mm. with the Mandarin landmark in Hong Kong, we had a WhatsApp group <laughs> with the hotel manager, with the head of engineering, with ourselves, with the lighting designer. And I remember the head of engineering at the hotel, he would take a photo of, you know, an, an issue on site and there would be 10 people jumping up to help. Oh, that's room 104. Let's go there and like sort that issue out. Um, you know, here's, here's my idea. And like there'd be messages flying all over the place of how we could do it. Um, and it might take like a few times to get to get it sorted, um, and a solution sometimes works. Sometimes you had to revisit it. But in the UK, it was it was drastically different in that when there was a solution, there was usually like a sit down mm. of like, okay, let's identify what the solution is, who's responsible for fixing it, and you know, like a plan to to actually execute it. And when the plan was done really more often that was done very, very well. Mm. So it was like two very different ways of addressing issues. Yeah. Um, but I guess inherently, like I come from Hong Kong, I really enjoy that fast pacedness of, let's not even talk about whose responsibility it is for a moment. Let's just, let's get, just it done. get it done for yeah. the design, you know? And I really like that attitude. Yeah. Um, I think it really, um, well, I mean, I'm speaking for myself. I think it really does kind of it seeps into you. It, it becomes it becomes addictive, I think. I don't know that I could work at any <laughs> other pace now, which I hope is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's really interesting to hear just how different it was between the same brand and in two different cities. Yeah. Um, but I guess that makes you very agile to be able to work so differently between the two studios. That's amazing. Yeah. I, LA was a different experience as well. Ah. Um, I remember like on a Thursday afternoon calling anybody was already quite difficult, let alone like Friday was just everybody's like weekend already begun. <laughs> I was like, wait. That sounds like, like Australia. I was like, wait, but I, I needed to see this thing on Friday. And like a lot of meetings would happen like in very casual environments, you know, like 
clothing, like super casual. We, I mean, given that we were working on the Roosevelt, um, we'd have a lot of meetings by the pool, you know, sipping cocktails. It was really, really like that. Wow. That kind Sounds of. Sounds very uh, cliched. Yeah. But <laughs> um, gosh. How funny. So I would love to talk to you next about what's coming up. I know there's a new restaurant project in Hong Kong. I'd love to hear a little bit about that and maybe um, what's coming up next. Yeah, we're working with Black Sheep, um, a restaurant group in Hong Kong um, who have a family of um, great restaurants with with amazing food. Um, um, we're, we're helping them with their new home for Belon, which is a restaurant that um, they've had for years and and has a huge following. Um, We're moving to a space down the road, so it's in the same neighborhood, um, and that's due to open before the end of the year. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, Aside from that, we're working on a private members club for car enthusiasts just outside of Tokyo. Ooh. Yeah, for a client who um, he sells um, uh, kind of racing cars and I think for his client base, um, it. we've also actually designed a, a private members bar for him for um, purchases, kind of procurers of these vehicles um, to enjoy and the club is kind of one kind of step beyond that um, and being able to, like any other, um, I guess, private members club, you'd be able to enjoy, you know, F&B, there'd be your own spa, um, you know, and, and racing component is kind of part of that. There is a pit lane and there is a track. Oh, wow. Um, so did you need to kind yeah. of learn a little bit about cars and that whole sort of world yeah um i think like the process of of what you do like the equipment that you bring and the mindset that you go into this you know whether it's for social or you're more of a soloist um there can be varying degrees of how serious you take this so i i think like having the design um accommodate and be flexible Amazing. If I can quickly go back to Boulogne, is there, are you allowed to talk about that at the moment? Yeah. Um, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about maybe the, the story or the narrative behind that and maybe, you know, um, how you approached it and, and perhaps the relationship with the chef and, and how the interiors and the food are going to be working together? Yeah. So um, actually there is a change of chef. Um, so um, I think the classics will remain, um, but I think there will be kind of some reinvention of um, new dishes based on kind of the new chef. Um, but I think the idea of, of the space was Belon had kind of grown up a bit and it become more sophisticated mm. um, than the environment that it was necessarily in. So, you know, the plating was more, more um, considered and sophisticated um, and the space wasn't necessarily matching up to that. So that was when Black Sheep... Um, came to us and said, you know, we, we want something that's a bit more mature and a bit more grown up. Um, the, the space is a level up um, from um, Holy Foot and um, uh, another one, another restaurant downstairs. So there, there is kind of this process of um, going up from kind of the busier street, which I think is, mm. is a positive for mm-hmm. us. Um, and what is really unique about this restaurant is I think Almost half of it is the kitchen. 
Oh, wow. So I think the seriousness that they place on the food and the chef and the equipment, you know, this is a serious restaurant. You know, mm. and, and when you go in, there's going to be, you'll, you'll see into half of the kitchen only. So there's kind of the presentable mm. um, display kitchen area and there's another kind of working half of it, uh, which won't be in view. Um, the ceiling heights are low, um, but we've opted to have, because it is quite an angular space, kind of more um, sinuous and, and curvy, bulbous furniture pieces. And it will be, because Boulogne is grounded in, in French cuisine, we wanted to use uh, French plastering and molding kind of as a layer and and then introduce actually new materials in front of that as a juxtaposition. And we've been able to work with incredible suppliers for this project. Somebody who makes pewter out in Ireland, um, actually an Australian manufacturer for mirror and glass, um, and a Berlin uh, wood veneer specialist who does um, kind of salt um, aged wood veneers. So like there's yeah. there's going to be some really interesting materials to to bring in contrast to that more traditional paneling and, and classic molding. Excellent. That sounds really exciting. So it's later this year. I guess it's very hard to pinpoint uh, yeah, an opening yeah. date at this stage with everything yeah. that's changing. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I'm curious to know whether there were considerations throughout the process or maybe even changes later on because of COVID and, you know, kitchens and open kitchens and all of the sort of sanitary uh, considerations. Was that something that you found uh, maybe changed any of the design detailing? Um, I think because it, it has been considered a fine dining restaurant from the onset, um, it was never that dense. You know, people had their own alcoves to, um, kind of call their own dining spaces. So we've not had to do any kind of drastic, um, changes to the design. Um, there is a chef's table, but I think, again, there's only a cover for three people. Mm. Um, so the the count of covers is quite low already. Um, and I'd say, you know, having gone through this whole period, like people wanting to dine out, that's still going to be the norm. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm desperate to get out and have a <laughs> meal that someone else cooks. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. So is there anything else that's coming up that you're allowed to talk about? Any sort of little teasers? I can mention the cities that we're working in. Okay. Um, we're doing something in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, which is super exciting because having worked on the Roosevelt, working in, on the West Coast has always been something I'd wanted to, to go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, we had that project in Melbourne, and hopefully that's still on hold. But but hopefully, yeah, I was very excited about that. <laughs> Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, something in London, a couple of things in London at the moment. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear that things are still, you know, moving forward, and that you're keeping busy. And yeah, we look yeah. forward to yeah, thank you getting some updates. And thanks again for your time. It's always great to catch up. Thanks for having me. Thank you.